Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Dire tread on burst stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And I'll whisper, No. I am Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. And I am here for a special show. I am at Mount Aloysius College in... What is the name of the city? Is it just Mount Aloysius? Crescent, Pennsylvania. In Crescent, Pennsylvania. For the second half of a crossover episode, yeah, the voice you just heard was Danny Anderson, who's been on the show before. He is the host of the Sectarian Review, which I was on earlier this morning slash in my future when the episode posts, but your past when our episode posts, because as you know, I hate time travel that occurs in the podcast. <laughs> um, Wayne was supposed to be here today, but he decided to go do interesting, like useful things with friends. So he canceled his appearance and Katia is... Hey. Hey. It's weird because I keep looking behind me. So if you've ever seen the 1984 Apple commercial, <laughs> where big is <laughs> like sort of behind them, that, that Katia is appearing to us right now. She is projected live via satellite or internet <laughs> on the big screen behind me. And this is a live show at Mount Olive, which is the school that we're at. The school that Danny teaches at has a comic book convention every year and charity convention. And they have an academic conference inside of it. So we decided to record a show from the conference. And we're really happy you came. Thanks for uh, taking part. You always add a lot to the show and, or to the, uh, to the event. And uh, you added a lot to my show uh, earlier on today. So thank you. That We were talking about Superman Red Sun, the, uh, the Mark Millar comic. And so uh, I really appreciated you being here. And it's always great to see you in person anyways. Yeah. Well, so they have a theme or you guys have a theme every year. And this year the theme was... Uh, was was it, is it just villains or is it yeah uh villains super villains i think maybe technically but yeah uh every year they organized it around some theme and this year they chose villains mm -hmm. and so I was like well what can we talk about on the show and i thought maybe just talk about the idea of anti-heroes and the popularity of anti-heroes and why they work they're super popular in comics and have been especially since the late 80s early 90s as the image explosion happened and the bad girl movement of comics happened. But also, I think they've always been around. So I thought it'd be interesting to sort of talk about the idea of why do we like antiheroes as opposed to heroes so as to make them successful in comics, movies, media, video games, I guess technically novels as well. I mean, it, it depends on first, I guess, how do we define the idea of what an antihero is? That's a good question. So um, I'm teaching a class on detective fiction this semester, and uh, which is sort of a new genre for me. I've read some, but I'm not like an avid fan. But mm -hmm. so I'm kind of learning as I go a little bit. But we read The, the Maltese Falcon by uh, mm -hmm. Hammett. Great book. And, um, and in that story, 
um, Sam Spade is absolutely an anti-hero, right? The movie adaptation smooths off some of the edges. Uh, not many. It's very yeah, he's still rough. <laughs> very rough. In the, well, yeah. so you're talking about the second movie adaptation. Well, I'm talking about the Humphrey Bogart. Yes. Uh, yeah. That is actually the oh, second version of Mal- Did Malt- not know Malt- that. Yeah. I, I wish I, I would have known that when I shot the book. Oh, um, <laughs> it is. It is the much better. Okay. Pretend that the other one doesn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, it might even be the third. I believe it's the second. There's one that's not called the Maltese Falcon, but is the same story. Oh, interesting. I, uh, and then there's the there's one that came out not long before. You know how we reboot things constantly sure. now. I want to say, yeah, I'm look them up while, while we're talking. I want to say that the first one is like less than ten years before the Bogart one. Oh, interesting. I, I actually own both copies of the movie. It is yeah. So the Bogart the Bogart one is in is in 1941. And the first adaptation was in 1931. So, yeah, there's 1931, The Maltese Falcon, starring Ricardo Cortez as Sam Spade and B.B. Daniels as Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Right. Then 1936 is a film called Satan Metalady. And it's a comedy. <laughs> it's exactly the Maltese Falcon. I mean, they give Dashiell Hammond. That's actually um, a good title for yeah, the book, actually. Yeah, they, yeah. they give him story, story credit on the, on the film, oh, even though it is not good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and honestly, the opening passage of that book is describes him specifically as Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he not only has the features, they said he looks like a Satan is what um, the literal words are. So it's actually a really. Um, mm-hmm. And so in that way, he's absolutely an anti-hero. He does really terrible things and he's utterly nihilistic. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Humphrey Bogart version of it, um, they smooth off quite a few of those rough yeah. edges. There's at one point in which um, he makes Bridget strip to prove to him that she didn't steal some money, right? And then and that's not in the movie version. Yeah, he, and he and looks wonder, at her and believes her, right? And is so, it not in the movie version because they're trying to make him nicer or are they trying to... We're not... Well, well we it's actually... Probably are, circumventing, like, uh, media codes, actually. Yeah, when does, when, does the, when does the Hollywood code start? Is it, uh, it's in the, in the late 30s. Late 30s, so. yeah. And so, yeah. well, but this, there are other things about that movie, though, that are consistent with that omission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so regardless, he's an anti-hero. Um, I don't know if he's the template for all of them, but mm-hmm. he's an earlier version of it, mm-hmm. I think. And so, um, yeah, this definitely transcends comics for sure. Yeah. And what I think is interesting about the idea of an anti-hero. So there was a presentation earlier by, by Brian, who's in, in this room <laughs> yeah. um, about the idea of anti-heroes. Hello, Brian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but his presentation earlier talked about specifically the, the ways in which anti-heroes in comics defy codes of conduct that heroes in comics are supposed to obey. But if you look at things like, you know, you're talking about detective fiction right now, Sam Speed, absolutely an anti-hero, arguably most of the characters by Chandler, um, in, in his version of the hard boiled detective, also anti-heroes. I would argue that Chandler's detectives um, have more of a code of conduct than Sam Spade does. Sure. Um, I'm forgetting Maltese Falcon, um, um, Big Chill. Um, his main protagonist is um, um, Archer. No, no Archer, Archer is Spade's, is Spade's, Spade's partner. Spade's partner. Um, it's, uh, oh gosh, Philip Marlowe. Yeah, Philip Marlowe. I would argue Marlowe has more of a code of conduct in his than, than Spade does. Yeah. But the hard-boiled detective in general does not work the way that a classic 
detective does, like in the mold of Sherlock Holmes yeah. or any of Poe's protagonists. The anti-hero of the hard-boy detective is just sort of defying expectations. He's working outside of the established code. And I think that in superhero comics, we talk about you know things like superhero fights for justice. The superhero um, doesn't kill. He's, he's got rules. But those rules are sort of sociologically defined. They are part of, and if you get into Campbell myth theory, which which was part of my talk earlier, the super the rules that a hero obeys, whether they're a superhero or just the protagonist of any myth, are usually what can I do to associate myself closely with the with the norms of the society that birth, that birthed me. So it's not so much that the anti-hero I think doesn't have codes of conduct, not necessarily. It's that they are working within a code that we recognize as altruistic and yet doesn't match whatever the sociological norm is. It's like D&D &D chaotic, uh, chaotic good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, well, in that sense, though, going back to the detective fiction, Sherlock Holmes is, is like he's less of an antihero maybe than like in the Maltese Falcon. But like Sherlock Holmes is also an antihero. The entire point is like he's it's like exaggerating the tv adaptations but even in the original stories he's like kind of a jerk mm -hmm. and the whole thing is it's like his inductive reasoning yeah. which isn't actually inductive reasoning but <laughs> his whole like, regime of inductive reasoning <laughs> is countercultural, um and that's like a major part of the stories mm -hmm. so he's not i think i mean his morality is not it doesn't make him an anti-hero but his way of interacting and seeing the world I, like I, I would think it would make him an anti-hero because it's like he's not really interested. He's interested in the cases as puzzles. He's not interested in helping people. It just happens. I think one of the things that makes Holmes interesting to me as a character is, and this is maybe the question, if we say that the anti-hero becomes the anti-hero by being not in the mold of the society which he birthed, which he birthed them, but fiction get all Roland Barty here. Author is dead from a couple of episodes ago. Fiction is eternal. The text survives the author. So reading Sherlock Holmes in 2018, reading Chandler or Hammett in 2018, 80 years after they originally wrote these texts yeah. or filmed these movies, even longer for, for, um, for mm -hmm. books by Poe or, or, um, uh, um, like you know, the author of Holmes, Doyle. We're we're not in their society anyway. So, do we see Holmes as more heroic now than they would have because we've had a century to get, to get used to the idea of this is just how a detective works, a, a hero of that time period works in a way that if we view the ways in which Superman behaved in Action Comics number one, 1939. Compared to the way Superman behaves now, his behavior is appalling. Mm -hmm. He's a horrible, horrible person. Well, I mean, if, if you if you take that strain of it, also when you go to the detective novels, like having the female like a female character stripped to prove like prove she's telling the truth, like I mean, that actually makes him not not an antihero, but less of one because that wouldn't that wouldn't have been. I mean, this is definitely true in like pulp science fiction, which has less of a strain mm -hmm. of antiheroes in the twenties and thirties, but pulp sci-fi now. Mm -hmm. More, like the moral codes in a lot of pulps from that period are like also important issues of gender now. Um, but there's, they're still not, I mean, I think that's where it gets different. They're still not anti-heroes because you read those books and you realize that that's a piece of its time. Right. I think like there's something that, that I think you're right. Mm -hmm. It's like our, our way of engaging with those characters is different over time, 
but I don't think like you'd become an anti-hero just because morality has changed. I think there's something else. Cause I mean, to go back to Sherlock Holmes and unfortunately we don't have our Victorianist, uh, this week because I am not an expert on 19th century British literature, but, uh, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is basically a parody, like a parody or an extreme version of radical empiricism and the scientific method. And so mm-hmm. he's taking something that's emergent in that time mm-hmm. because basically the sciences are emerging as a solid field and basically living by it in a way that's both really appealing to a lot of people who are like invested in that kind of thinking, but also, I don't know how to say this, but like also not normative. Mm-hmm. So he's like simultaneously very appealing on one end, but also like very abnormal on the other end. I mean, as you said, neither of us are in the right time period. <laughs> how out there he is. But what I'm wondering is, again, we'll take Bart as gospel from a couple of episodes ago. The author is dead, so the intent doesn't matter. And one of my examples in the blog post, and you should be reading the blog if you're not, www.voxpopcast.com. There's the cheap plug for the episode. Got good pictures. (laughs) (laughs) I used an example of Rorschach from the comic Watchmen. And Alan Moore has talked about Watchmen. When he wrote it, he intended for Rorschach and Rorschach's behavior to be appalling. He does not understand why people like Rorschach. He thinks it's ridiculous. He thinks anybody who does like him must be crazy. So he saw Rorschach as almost a parody level of the object, the objectivist philosophies of Rand. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that you'd have to be insane to be a fan of Rorschach. And yet once the book came out, everyone was. People don't necessarily see Rorschach as an antihero in the same way that some, it's the same way that people watch watch the movie because they never read the book because books are hard, but they watch the movie Fight Club and people love Tyler Durden. Because, oh my God, I want to be just like him. You're not supposed to be like Tyler Durden. You're supposed to Right. Well, because there's something about those characters that are interesting, though. I mean, I think part of it, um, like we were talking a while ago about video games, like, mm-hmm. anti, like uh, I think like in video games, especially recently, like I see themes of anti-heroes becoming more prominent, particularly in, I think, like as the generation that grew up in the like 80s and 90s, playing video games as kids where like in most like games targeted towards children and young teens, they're pretty straight up moral games where you're playing a classic hero. But as that population has gotten older, we want more, more interesting stories. We want different stories. So the way that they've been adding narrative complexity has been around questions, questions of morality and giving you either giving you characters that are straight up anti-heroes or in more open world stuff, the option. Um, and so I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is just like those characters are interesting because it's not necessarily that we want to be them, but I mean, sort of mm-hmm. like it's why we play role-playing games, right? It's interesting to inhabit sure. that position culturally and sort of experiment with it, even if we find it personally abhorrent and something we wouldn't do in real life. Like that's part of what media is for. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can experiment with ideals that you don't necessarily share, but I'm wondering more about the worship access. Mm-hmm. Back there. So, in in the case of Rorschach, in the case of Fight Club, if the character of Durden or Rorschach is supposed to be unpalatable, there are clearly fans of Durden who think he's the best mm-hmm. thing ever. So, to those people, does he still count as an antihero? Mm. Is um, trying to think who's a really classic? Uh, 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 oh, here is example that I find super problematic: the the Punisher. The Punisher, clearly intended by Marvel Comics to be an anti-hero, but there is a certain 
red state level (laughs) (laughs) um, mentality uh, where quite frequently I see cops, actual policemen with Punisher tattoos or decals Mm -hmm. on their vehicles. It's crazy to me because the entire point of the character is, no, you're not supposed to like him. He, He would not like you. That's the Punisher's whole gig is he thinks that you're ineffective. But if you agree with the morality, the very black and white morality that there's good and there's evil and evil must be punished by death. If you believe that, then the Punisher now fits your social norm. Yeah. So, yeah, in that case, I don't I mean, I guess it depends on is it an antihero in comparison to like the individual reader's norm or is it an antihero in comparison to like an overall societal norm? I don't know. And does it does it matter which side? So what happens if you take take an American hero and transplant them to France? I mean, I think that's that's a different question. But like, well, I-, I mean, I think it depends on why someone is identifying with that hero, because like so, for example, like uh, I'm not I'm not in super I'm not as much of a comic book person. But so to, to take an example recently, I was talking to some guy in a bar who had a Death Eater tattoo uh, from Harry Potter, of all things. Mm-hmm. And which is, I mean, I, I imagine everyone knows this, but basically the Death Eaters in Harry Potter are like an allegory of white supremacy and Nazis and fascism. Uh, and so I was like, this is interesting. Why do you have this tattoo? And he's just like, oh, because I'm a bad boy. And I'm like, okay. And it's like, this has nothing to do with the politics. Like, it's nothing to do with the politics of it. Like, you just like the idea of, like, identifying with, like, the darker characters, the people who aren't, like, you You know, you want to be the opposite of a Hufflepuff, basically. You don't want to be the goody-goody. You, you don't want to be the goody-goody. And you also don't want to live in a world, I think, that is black and white. Or at least in that case. So I think it's right. like... In a case like that, it's like, I don't think that he's, he's not identifying, he doesn't think of the Death Eaters as heroes, but he likes the idea of identifying with an anti-hero, whereas I think what you're talking about with Punisher is a little bit different. Those are people that are buying into the morality that you think this, like the Death Eater tattoo guy is necessarily buying into the politics and the ethos of that sort of like clan of humans. Your friend is the kind of guy who roots for Darth Vader. Yeah. Is, you know, he, yeah, like you're, or, Which I also don't or, get is the people the who have the, 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 it's the just, like, uh, storm, like th- that always claim to be stormtroopers on their cars. And like, it's like, no, no, you can't shoot anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's, but that's, so that's, um, we actually have stormtroopers wandering around here. <laughs> um, yes. See, bring one in. We can have a conversation about it with them. <laughs> but that's the interesting question. If you go back to your earlier point about Dungeons and Dragons characters, mm-hmm. if I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons, maybe I want to play chaotic evil at some point just because, yeah. because it's, it's fun to do that. I don't think I'm an evil person. I try not to, but like what, but what's it like to just sort of in, inhabit this, this whole alternate morality, they're certainly fun to that. I, I certainly, I don't agree with the Punisher morally at all, but I very much enjoyed that Netflix show that was just on. I thought it was great. So, so there is certainly an appeal there. So are, are there multiple appeals? Is part of the appeal, the, the investigating the morality, whether you agree with it or not. And part of the appeal is just, it's really cool to watch people kill stuff. Like, you know, you know. I mean, I think, I think it depends on the, I think it depends on the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I can see two strands of this. I mean, I can see the desire to inhabit 
uh, an alternate mor- morality uh, mm-hmm. and just sort of do evil things just to kind of cathartically <laughs> process it, you know, for, you know, psychologically healthy reasons, maybe. I don't know. But I mean, it's the reason we watch horror films. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I could see that. But there's also, I think, Rorschach, as horrible as he is, and the Punisher, as horrible they are, is they're not entirely wrong about what they're seeing in the world. And so Mm -hmm. they do see that the world is flawed. The world's institutions are Mm -hmm. flawed. Going back to Sherlock Holmes, one of the things about private detectives is that public policing is flawed. Yeah, the the real cops can't solve the crime. you got to bring in Dupin or Sherlock Holmes to to do that for you because the the systems suck, right? And so... Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I think that there's a way in which people see what Rorschach is seeing and also agree that that world mm-hmm. is not worth saving. Right. Basically. And so um, and that's the the point of entry at which they identify with someone like Rorschach. So it's not like the Punisher or Rorschach is wrong about corruption in the world. Mm-hmm. Their solution to that is what's wrong, right? And so, and and that may be where you run into an intersection with the wanting to live vicariously sort of through characters. Well, that's, that's where you vote for Trump. I mean, <laughs> I mean well, no, so here's where I was wondering. Every, and I don't know that I believe this, but there's a saying that every villain is the hero of his own story. I don't know that I believe that. I think some, I think there are situations where someone is enjoying villainy, particularly in comic books. There are, there mm-hmm. are people who, um, <laughs> in my favorite mo- moment of the movie Suicide Squad is when Harley walks by a window, she sees a purse that she likes, so she smashes the window and steals it. And they're like, we're supposed to be saving the world. She looked at her and she says, we're bad guys, duh. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I want my purse. <laughs> right. Yeah, she is aware that she is doing something wrong. She is not yeah. a hero at that point. But I think typically your Lex Luthor character yeah. is your Lex Luthor character is doing to go back to we talked about Red Sun in yeah. uh, earlier on your show in the prime Lex Luthor from the regular comics or even in the that alternate reality Lex Luthor is doing what he's doing because he believes he's right there's an alien and arguably he is right I'll give you, use the alternate point of view at the forgetting everything that I know about Superman because I know the myth the mythical character mm-hmm. of Superman storybook that has been coming out for 80 years and I've got history to where I know, oh my god, there's a wonderful being who's going to save us all. If I'm Lex Luthor and Superman is in my actual reality, my actual lived reality, an alien from space who can hurl mountains just came down and I'm scared now. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it, like, why would I, you know, why, why wouldn't I want to save the world from that? That's the plot to every alien invasion movie ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he says he's a good guy. And I'm a level nine intelligence. I'm obviously smarter than everybody else. Right. So let me make the decisions. Right. So mm-hmm. if you, so if you're, if you're Donald Trump, because <laughs> it's very easy. I mean, obviously I'm not a fan. If you've heard the show before, I'm not a fan, <laughs> but it's very easy to just say, well, he's stupid and he's evil. He's not those things. He's not intelligent and he's not good, but but I wouldn't say he's blindly stupid or evil. Trump doesn't want to build the wall because he's stupid. Trump wants to build the wall because he believes rapists are coming from Mexico to sell us drugs and kill people. Or that's a... No, I I believe he believes that. Okay, or that's a... a a convenient way to get votes from a certain demographic. It is. Right. No, I, I, but he's, he's doing that because whether he personally believes it or not, he believes that someone believes it. 
I don't, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't know that those two things are mutually exclusive. Exactly. Right. I, I, I think that is an. I think that is an illogical fear. <laughs> True. But it is. But it is a real fear. It is a real thing that someone is really afraid of. So, to the person who believes that, to the person who believes that all terrorists are Muslim, to the person who believes that gays really do want to destroy Christianity and that God hates them and will cause a flood and kill us all if we allow them to get married. If you believe those things, then you are behaving absolutely logically by trying to stop them. Yeah. You're the fact that you're wrong sort of, you know, throws, sort of throws everything, uh, throws everything out of whack, but your behavior is logical. You are taking a, a heroic action by voting for the person I'm going to build a wall to keep mm -hmm. you safe. So at that point, you know, is he an anti-hero to those people? No, he's nearly he's a messiah. I mean, like, like he. No, I, I, like, no. I mean, I don't think you, from either perspective, you could call Trump an anti-hero because I mean, I, I see what you're saying though, because it's like, yeah, for the people who agree with those premises, like who are like, that is the reality that they believe in. Hello, my dissertation chapter. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, but that's like, that, that, that is a reality that they believe in, and that's what they're voting. And like, yes, it's a logical set of pro like it's a it's a logical conclusion mm -hmm. based on a set of premises that you and I would disagree with. So yeah, like to him, I mean, you don't even have to like. I mean, all over the internet, there's people calling Donald Trump a hero who are like that. But I mean, I think the thing about it that makes it an anti-hero is because the people who don't agree with those premises. And this is why I don't think you can call mm -hmm. Trump an anti-hero is because it's not merely that because we just disagree with him to us. He's like the villain or whatever you want to say it, or he's just somebody we disagree with. Um, whatever terminology you want to use that. I don't, I mean, I don't think you can say that's an anti-hero because we would still have to find something. I mean, going back to what we're talking about with Rorschach and Punish, like there's still something about mm -hmm. that that seems right. We might disagree with the methods. We might disagree with, yeah, we might, like, we, might, we might disagree with how those characters are doing their heroism, which is what makes them an anti-hero, but we still agree. We might still identify with or agree with the fundamental premises that like, yes, something about the world is wrong and I'm going to fix it. Okay. So you think that for someone to qualify as anti-hero by this definition, there has to be something that we can cling to. Yeah. To, I, think, um, I think there's something there has okay. to be, because it's like, I mean, just even look at the word. It's like, it's like two things that are intentional. You have anti and hero. You have to have a little bit of both. You can't have all one or the other. Okay. And I mean, I think that's also where like, it's really hard to call real people anti-heroes. Well, okay. Then let, so, um, cause I'm wondering if we, we go back to Trump again, mm -hmm. then explains the attraction from the other side, from the people, from the people who aren't me, from someone who is financially conservative, for someone who is vehemently pro-life, for someone who believes Mexicans are going to kill him, then does it make sense to vote for the guy who is a crazy, brash, woman-hating businessman? Because I don't agree with his methods or his personality but at least he's promising to get the job done. So if I am the hardcore conservative, is Trump now my anti-hero? Who's I mean, I guess I would call it a choice based on pragmatism that again, I wouldn't disagree with, but does that make him an anti-hero? I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with Katya. I think that it's hard to assign this title to real people. I think that We're it's almost complex. like it has to come in the form of fiction on okay. some level. Um, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I is he a real hard. person? <laughs> well, going to another question, right? That's actually a really good one. Um, yeah, but no, I do think that, 
when I so when I think of anti-hero, I think of someone like Tony Soprano, right? And okay. I, that's kind of you know one of the early shows in this so-called golden age of TV, right? Absolutely. And so and, and it's, uh, and, and, yeah, cheap plug for a book. If you've never read it, The Revolution Was Televised by Alan yes. Steppenwall. Okay. Brilliant. Put it in the yeah. show notes. Oh, you've read it? It's great. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, that sets the template for this kind of character that Walter White is. This, mm-hmm. Someone you know is a criminal and you know he's an adulterer and he's terrible in almost every socially acceptable way. But he, you still root for him. Uh, but for some other reason, is right? Tony an anti-hero? Because Tony's not. I'm trying to think. Is there anything heroic about Tony? He doesn't stand for anything that I believe in. By our, our, our I mean, yeah, he stands for the fact that he kind of loves his family, doesn't yeah. want him to die, and I, I agree with that. But he's an adherent <laughs> to a code that has lost its its uh, primacy, right? Okay. Um, and so he's like coming of age as a gangster in an age when all those honor codes are no longer honored, right? Okay. And so. I think we all kind of feel like we're born into the wrong time. And, and you know what I mean? And I think that's, that's the point of identification. I have a talking car. I love this time. <laughs> <laughs> but my talking car is fly. I don't love this time. <laughs> my car talks to me. Like the only reason I'm here today, I'm 70 miles from home. I could not do this by myself. <laughs> yes. uh, point taken there. But yeah, but that um, though we, we recognize what he's doing is criminal, we still see some sort of ethos. Um, he's not wrong about seeing the, the hypocrisies of the straight world and all that. You know sure. what I mean? And so we all recognize that too. Here's a guy who's brave enough to go out and just do it his own way, and the straight world's not letting him do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that might be the the point at which we know we're not supposed to be like him, but we still kind of root for him. Okay. See, see, I, see, I, and I like that show, but I almost see like where I see a real antihero is I, you mentioned um, Breaking Bad with yeah. Walter White. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm and I'm torn on this one. The first season of Breaking Bad, maybe even the second. Uh, and this is, you know, this is again the premise of the show is that he is Breaking Bad. But the Breaking Bad starts out as a show about the crisis of the healthcare system in ways that I 100% agree with. Yeah. His decision is completely rational. We live in a world where healthcare does not work, where we don't do wellness care, where I suddenly have, uh, where, uh, not the healthcare system, the healthcare system and the educational system, where I have no money because, (laughs) yeah, I have no money, I have bad insurance and I have cancer and I'm brilliant. Hey, I can sell meth. This is a logical decision. Yeah. Um, Similar decisions made on the, on comedically in weeds. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is like those decisions we don't agree with them, but they're understandable. Yeah, yeah. Like we can at least see. I mean, I think it's. I mean, to go back to even the Trump example, like maybe there's something about the fact that like we recognize that there is a logic, right? And I mean, I think that's the thing is it's like you have to be able to sympathize with them, even if you disagree with everything about it. There has to be something sympathetic. The problem with Breaking Bad is that if you are as smart as Walter is. There are a world of possibilities that exist somewhere in the continuum between die because I can't afford health care and or sell meth. You know, there are like you'd think he could have come up with some other solution. But, but then that wouldn't be as interesting of a story. Right, there's no show. There is no so. Right. Um, and on that note, I actually have to run. OK. And I have solved nothing. Okay. And I will fade into the ether. All right. But thank you for having me as always. Bye. Nice talking to you. Bye. Yeah. And so I honestly, I've never seen Breaking Bad. (laughs) I've only seen the, uh, 
the first um, episode, I think, maybe mm-hmm. the first couple. I might have seen the first few or three. But um, yeah, for that one, I can't really speak to. But I do know that uh, it follows this template, though, right? And it's mm-hmm. one of those shows that people talk about in a way that you kind of recognize the person is doing wrong. But there's a lot. What is the saying about if, if you're in an insane world, insanity is the only logical response, right? Sure. The Joker says this in the killing, in killing joke. joke yeah. um, and so, um, yeah, I think that there is a sense in which the Joker is an interesting character because he's obviously, a, I mean, this is more, how far can you take the anti-hero until he becomes a villain? I guess um, the earlier pr- uh, presentation, I think touched on this about Deathstroke. Um, and so, yeah. So at what point does, is the Joker, at what point is the Joker um, not a villain, but an anti-hero? Is there a way to make the Joker, is there a way to use this term to apply to the Joker? Right. Um I don't know. This um, is Brian who presented slightly earlier. So you can hello, take the how are you? <laughs> Great. Okay. So repeat your question again. So, uh, what, so if you, if we can consider Tony Soprano or Walter White an anti-hero um, because of the, the way the narrative is structured, even though they're killing people and selling drugs and doing all the terrible things they do, at what point can we, is it stretching that definition or that term too far to apply it to someone like the Joker? Is the Joker? No, no it's actually something they just explored in DC Comics with uh, White Knight, that eight issue series. Mm-hmm. So um, they have yeah, a, a Joker persona in in that story, and he is actually uh, dueling the the person who is not Joker. He's been he's been infected, and he's he's turning into the Joker uh, throughout the story. He's trying to fight it. But um, (laughs) the idea of the Joker actually being an anti-hero is really simple. He has to find um, a way to exist in between a hero and a villain, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he has to be liminal. As I talked about earlier, you yeah. know, the whole liminality aspect, you know, that whole uh, anthropology, you know, that concept in anthropology. Um, he has to find a way to uh, at, at one end exist within our, our sense of morality. And that's where the Joker is greatly misunderstood. He doesn't exist in our reality, our sense of mor- morals. He's he he operates outside of that. He's not insane. He's he, we call him genius or we could argue that he's genius or insane because we don't understand the logic that he presents an alternative sanity. <laughs> I, yes, you could say that, but, and that's why it's very difficult to see him as the anti-hero because every action that he is doing is going against the status quo of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an anti-hero is some of their actions are against society and some of them are within the realm of the or within the status quo of how to operate as a as a good person so i mean look at garth enos like look at garth enos's work uh the preacher um or you know tommy monaghan from hitman or heaven forbid the boys you know so um they they're constantly, you know, in one hand, they're doing something great. And the other hand, they're doing something really petty and awful. Mm-hmm. I think there's absolutely some logic to that, because it, that goes to what Katia was saying before she had to leave. At least with an antihero, there is something that we can hang on to. Yeah. I don't know 
outside of the killing joke where there's not much, I don't know that I'm rooting even, for the Joker. Even, I just understand. Even in the in the killing joke, yeah. even that whole sympathy, that whole where he presents his origin, even that is questionable because with that one line. Yeah. He says, I prefer to be multiple choice. My, mm-hmm. you know, my origin to be multiple choice. So, and that's something that, you know, Alan Moore just put in there and it's beautiful because it, it gives you a, a, this false sense of understanding the Joker. And we really don't. And that's something in the new 50, or, oh, sorry, in the not new 52, the rebirth, there's the potential of three Jokers. Mm-hmm. Really? Holy cow. So, I want to look at some of the other characters that we did talk about on the, on the, thanks Brian. We talked about the Netflix series. Yeah. And I find them interesting because all four of them, including, or five of them, I'll include include Punisher, but all five of the series, including Iron Fist are about characters who do this thing we've been talking about. They have some level of devotion to the social good, Maybe Jessica doesn't, which is my favorite of the shows. You know, she ultimately does, but she's almost forced to. She's almost dragged into it. They have some level of devotion to the social good, but all of their methods are, at least in theory, outside the norms of what society says is okay to be a hero. At least that's what we say in practice. Are they as vigilantes on that show any different than any other hero? Like in practice, Superman is a hero and Batman is a vigilante, but they effectively do the same thing. It's just yeah. it's just running around punching bad guys. And, and honestly, that's, I think, what Alan Moore wants us to understand about all superheroes are inherently fascist. Right. right. And so um, I think that's sort of the point of watching or Watchmen. And so, yeah. And I think that um, for me, the. I like this, the daredevil. I have not seen any of the new season of it, mm-hmm. um, but um, I just finished it. It was good. Yeah. Uh, I just haven't had, you know, time. And so, um, but the, uh, the first season is he's got this sort of religious conversation going with this priest about what's right to do. And ultimately the priest encourages him to keep doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So he is getting some sort of morality, the transcends legal system, right? I mean, right. he's getting divine, uh, uh, whatever affirmation for what he's doing. And so in the, or second, at least from a representative. Yeah. For me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So he, he's got coverage when he gets to the gates. Right. And so, um, uh, but the, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, but the, uh, uh, the second season is when the, the, I think the Punisher is only interesting as a foil, right? I did not watch the new Punisher series. I started it and I couldn't get into it. it I just don't think he's interesting as a character. He is, he is not for well, well, interestingly <laughs> enough. I don't know that I think the way you stated that as foil, not antagonist. I agree with you. Yeah. The Punisher series, just as an interjection, took me a while. I watched it just because, again, it's a superhero thing. So I I have to watch it. It's my job. (laughs) It's your job. (laughs) So. And I'm not, which is not to say that I, I mean, there have been superhero shows that I have not enjoyed. There have been a couple that I've bailed on a couple for the most part, though. I watched them all. Yeah. And I, was watching it sort of passively while doing something else for the first three episodes. Then about there is when you start like where you, where you start picking up and you go, Oh, they're doing a thing because the, the foil to what Punisher is about. Isn't about just a vigilante killing people. That would be the Punisher films, which is why I don't like any of them. I yeah. got bored with them. The Punisher television series is about the different attitudes towards that, which you need to see more of microchip who you might not have gotten to and eventually Karen page who 
becomes the main part of the series. And you need to, like, they need to work as a family. Similarly, I hate Batman comics. To me, Batman is only interesting as a character in seeing how other people play in Batman's world. So one of my favorite comics as a kid, young adult, I love the Robin solo comic. Okay. Robin was about Tim Drake trying to live in Batman's world. Yeah. I love Nightwing as a character who is a relatively well-adjusted human being trying to exist in a world where he was raised to be a superhero by a sociopath. Um, yeah, yeah. Because Batman is not okay. And this is what this new DC Titans seems to be. That's the version of Robin. That's the version seeing. of Robin, Robin, Robin you're seeing. Yeah. I, I like Birds of Prey. I like characters trying to live outside of Batman's shadow. I haven't found Batman interesting in and of himself until the most recent book series. I find some of the movies interesting and, and fun. Yeah. But... I've always enjoyed reading more about the people in Batman's orbit yeah. than reading about Batman himself, yeah. which is similar to a, a lot of people stopped watching the television show Arrow because they thought it got repetitive. Last season of Arrow, I loved because it wasn't the story. The villain was irrelevant. Mm-hmm. What the story was is this surrogate Batman. What happens when his world crumbles around him because everybody stops believing him? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, And so, yeah, going back to that second season of Daredevil then, if we're supposed to wonder whether Daredevil in that Netflix series is a hero or anti-hero, I don't think we ever think of him as a villain. Right. Um, but th- if those are the three options, hero, villain, anti-hero, something in the middle, mm-hmm. um, that second season sets him firmly as a hero because of the way he bounces off someone who's obviously an anti-hero. Um, the Punisher is, because he's only killing gangsters and vile people, he doesn't really count as a villain, right? Um, and Does so, he? Well, I, well, in terms of the narrative, in terms like, of the narrative, life, of course, he well, would, right? <laughs> and, see, and, that, and that's what and, you know, again, Wayne couldn't be here. As we said at the end of the show, Wayne makes an interesting argument that I talked about on the blog, which I wanted to transition into a little bit. We can get back to the Netflix stuff, too, because I actually do want to talk more about the way the other characters, the, you know, the Luke and Jessica and, and Danny characters behave. But to just transition to the Punisher for a bit. Wayne has always said that his problem with the existence of the Punisher in the Marvel Universe, the comics, uh, uh, that is, is he doesn't understand how a universe exists where Captain America lives in a city that also has Frank Castle. And if Wayne were editor in chief in Marvel, that couldn't happen because (laughs) Captain America, as the character that we've grown to see of Steve Rogers, does not go to sleep at night. In a world where Frank Castle walks the same streets of the city, Good he point. just he, he just would not allow that to happen. Good point, Wayne. Be- yeah. Because um, not because Frank Castle can't exist. Frank Castle exists in, in you know in in many other movies with the same sort of plot. But Frank Castle can't exist in a world where there's this big a Boy Scout walking around. And I find it interesting because the Punisher gets his first comic book series his first personal comic book series outside of appearing in Spider-Man and Daredevil in 1997 at the same time as Captain America in his book is hunting a character named Scourge in the Underworld. Scourge in the Underworld was a character um, in a white leather outfit who in a skull mask, uh, at least that was his normal outfit. He is also a master disguise who would wander in as a henchman or something. He is a master disguise who would show up and was just summarily executing supervillains in the Marvel universe. He was only killing bad people. Yeah. 
but he was, but he, um, it was Mark Grunwald, the author is one of the ways he was just sort of lightening the load on the Marvel universe. Cause he was mostly killing villains that nobody else cared about. I see. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but that was just in storyline terms. Mostly he was going through and just, Oh, you're an evil murderer. Kapow. And he'd kill you. And Cap had to hunt him down. It took for, I think he finally catches him in like 2001 or something from like 95. It's like a five or six year storyline. Mm. He hunts him down because Cap cannot abide a person who has set themselves up as judge during executioner in America. So Cap hunts down Scourge. Mm. But that comics on the shelf next to Punisher comics. Yeah. And in a, in a shared universe, how can one be like, they are effectively the same character. How can one be heroic or anti-heroic, but heroic and the other is be a villain. Is it just Cap's perspective? Uh, and that's, well, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, and so in, uh, I, I would love to watch the Punisher now without the dare, without daredevil in it, because maybe the Punisher's character is defined by the, whatever is defined as heroic, you know what I'm saying? And so that kind of positions you, I, this all sounds very relativistic, mm-hmm. I suppose. It is. <laughs> and and it, the yeah. show, the show has to sort of invent a reason for you. So the first three episodes of the show are very much about PTSD. It's the yeah. only, it's the only narrative that's going that's going on. And as the show sort of continues, he has given people to care about. Yeah. So as to create a narrative, like he needs a family in order to have a television show that's accessible and not just Punisher kills villain of the week, which is what the comic book was for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of the Punisher, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet I guess because of who he's killing, which we define those people we define as a society um, as criminal, Mm-hmm. we're okay with making him a hero or, uh, and we know he can't be a hero. So that's what we reserve the term anti-hero mm-hmm. for. Now, Brian had brought up the term liminality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so or liminal. And I know like Victor Turner is the, I don't know if that's the guy you were talking yeah, about. Sure. Yeah. He's um, the anthropologist. Now when he's talking about liminality in terms of like tribal cultures, that's always on the way towards something, right? That's not just a state you exist in forever. You enter into these liminal spaces as a boy about to become man um, and go through the trials um, mm-hmm. where you're neither boy nor man to come through on the other end as a man, right? right. It's part of, it's a, it's a specific instantiation of the hero's journey that I talked about. Exactly. Earlier. Yeah. It's a, it's a point on that, that arc. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so um, in this case, the anti-hero, if it never progresses out into heroism, um, Brian's, uh, presentation was a death stroke and going back and forth along those poles. And so in that way, liminality works because he is progressing or degressing <laughs> depending on your point of view. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but the Punisher never advances right uh, into the realm of hero. Right. And so uh, uh, nor does he advance or decline into the realm of villain. And so, yeah, I yeah. mean, or at least not, not if you want to see it. if you take the premise that I always use about superheroes, which is it's an incomplete hero's journey because it can never end unless you kill. Him. I mean, the hero's journey can only end one way he gets there and there is dead usually. Yeah. But in comics, since they're intended to be overarching narratives that go on forever. Yeah. Um, well, that's the, you're, yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> there's you no have third to, act, right? that's yeah, your there's point. no yeah. third act to the overall, <laughs> to the overall story. Um, the difference being, for instance, if you, the Chris Nolan's dark Knight trilogy, yeah, he's definitely an anti-hero yeah. presented. Uh, Nolan presents him as a, as outside the law. Yeah. And 
he there is a beginning, middle, and end. Dark Knight Rises has a definitive ending to it where and he can no longer be Batman because yeah. this is the end of that story. And he's a hero because there's a statue towards him at the end, right? Yeah. Um, because he saved the city from being nuked. And so he does make the 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 journey. Yeah, he but makes it, the journey. Yeah. But but the arc completes yeah. in a way that I that the Punisher's arc can't, at least not if we want to continue making money by making another season. Yeah. And then with the Dark Knight also, it depends on, I don't think from the viewer's perspective, we ever see him as an anti-hero. I think we see him as the hero. The city itself is made to see him as an anti-hero, um, like within, within the world, kind of, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So the citizens of Gotham in, those, in Dark Knight, for example, um, see him as an anti-hero, but we never do. I, I think we see him differently than they do, kind of. Maybe. I'm, I'm kind of a... I'm personally on Lucius Fox's side where I'm like, uh, again, all heroes are fascists. All superheroes are fascists. He, he makes a decision of, oh, I, I want to own all technology so I can turn it off. Yeah. I'm, I'm not okay with that. So, yeah, yeah. so, 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 but I see, I see, yeah. I see the point you're making. I mean, he is, he is not presented as question as morally questionable. Yeah. His morality is without, without doubt. Whereas I think In the typically yeah. your anti-heroes it, with an anti-hero with, with Rorschach, with Punisher, I'm supposed to wonder if he's right at some point. Yeah, yeah. And in this movie, I mean, it does in that same movie, The Dark Knight, resolve that dilemma. He destroys the capability himself. Now, whether he should have used it at all, it's another moral question, right? But, um, but we never, yeah, we never doubt his intentions. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's got he's got an implicit integrity yeah. that is unwavering in the way that an antihero is. Well, an antihero, I was going to say, is allowed to have a fuzzy line, yeah. but then Rorschach doesn't. Yeah. The entire point of Watchmen is Rorschach has no fuzzy line. This is the morality. Everything is black or white. This is the morality that I am allowing to happen. And I cannot move on. All anti-heroes in Watchmen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, argu- or, or, arguably they are. Or well, they—they they are. <laughs> I mean, they're all—they're all imperfect. They all have their issues. Oh, sure, yeah, no, that I agree with. But the, but then the question becomes: what we were saying before is Rorschach morally ambiguous? No, no, he just—he is absolutely morally staunch. Rorschach is in his world, and he tells you he is an absolute hero. Yeah, he—that's he, why he dies at the end because, because he cannot, he's no longer an anti-hero. He yeah. actually commits to an ideal. And that causes his demise. See, I think he, I think I I read Watchmen as he dies because he has realized that a world exists which cannot be black and white. Mm. Mm. Rorschach believes that there is good and there is evil, and evil must be punished. And I decide what is good, and and I decide what is evil. But Manhattan forces Rorschach to realize that even though um, Ozymandias does something that Rorschach cannot abide as good, it is clearly evil. The end result, at least within the extant text of, of Watchmen, not taking any of the sequels into account. The end result is that um, Adrian has caused something good to occur and Rorschach cannot reconcile those two. There can be no good and evil My, and no evil and good. The hero code I talked about, you know, <laughs> one of the, one of the, the points, one of the bullet points is extreme times called for extreme measure. Right. And I don't that's think why, Rorschach allows that's why for that. Adrian does that right but i don't think i don't think i don't think rorschach can ever allow that to happen there are no i mean he doesn't see himself as extreme it's perfectly rational to go break fingers to get information yeah and i have honestly recently been having conversations with colleagues about the state of the world that we happen to live in right Mm -hmm. now and honestly i 
have openly wondered whether Ozymandias had the right idea. Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, like, um, like I do think I do. Well, that's the moral, that's the moral relativism of the entire anti-hero question and right. the entire morality question. Um, it's the, in the news recently, there's been, what is the stance of the Democrats? Is it, if they go low, we go high or is it, if they go low, we kick them. Yeah. And there are arguments either way. How do you reconcile the things you might not be able to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I did want to finish up talking about just, you know, briefly the other Netflix series since I won yeah. And this goes, um, well, the Netflix series and also I mean, Brian made that comment just briefly about everybody's an antihero. Yeah. Are all heroes antiheroes anyway? We say they're all fascist, but for the most part, with very few exceptions, the comedian who's clearly portrayed as an antihero, but he's working 100% within the, within the law. Yeah. Captain America works within the law. Most of them are outlaws. They're, they're, they are, some are given more care by the police for magical reasons. People just trust Superman. Yeah. But he's not an agent of the government. He is, you know, and he is fascist. That's the entire point of Red Sun. It's the yeah. entire point of Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting to me that that question is interesting. I, um, so when I think of like Captain America as he's presented in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, mm -hmm. which is connected to ways he's been developed in the comics, um, is I, I do think of him as an adherent to some sort of transcendent moral code or it's like a, it's, it's not a moral code, but an ideal of America that is beyond like law history or, mm -hmm. or practice, right? It's some, it's the, it's the, the Jewett and Lawrence version of the American monomyth to yes. name another book that I will link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, I feel like for him, because he's an adherent, I mean, he's almost like, a, if you will, a Christian who his moral code is divine, is divinely inspired, yes. right? And so God, or in his case, Uncle Sam spoke down to me from yes. upon high and there's a good and moral and just American way. And then there is whatever else you want to do. And in some cases, the law of this, in, of these institutions is on the wrong side of that mm -hmm. divine right and wrong. And so I, I break the law. I'm only doing it because it's the right thing to do. And so I feel like Captain America's goody goodiness doesn't really get tarnished because he's always, uh, I feel like I, I have no. a hard time. Well, I know that they no, no, but that, but that becomes a question in, in Captain, in Captain America, Captain America, both in the comics has at times been an outlaw, the nomad storyline and the captain storyline. And in the films, he is an outlaw currently post middle of the civil war film. He loses his, blessing of the government yeah he is clearly working against the state yeah for what appears to be an ultimate moral good yeah but the film is trying whether it succeeds or not is another question the, the film is trying to present both tony and cap's arguments as morally okay like for good tony, reasons. tony has tony makes the stance uh, or not actually tony um uh general ross comes in and he says, where are the Hulk and Thor? And Tony says, I don't know. And Ross says, if I lost two nuclear bombs, the country would have my head. Yeah. You know, and, and he's right. You, you misplaced two of the most powerful beings on the planet. And you want me to be okay with that. I have to, you know, there, there's a question. I, I have to yeah. register my gun. I have to register. Yeah. So yeah, I, I that movie to me is interesting in that, like, I, I'm not a fan 
Okay, I would just out myself of sort of technocratic liberalism. Okay, <laughs> whether that's Republican or Democratically uh, affiliated, uh, I think Tony Stark is a representative of technocratic liberalism, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's morally abhorrent. And so I think what he this sort of registering and controlling everybody from on high is morally abhorrent to me. And that's why I'm on cap side in that debate. Well, right? it's, it's, it's the question of fascism. Yeah. It, is there free choice if I'm forcing you to make the choice? Yes. And which is something I said, it's a callback to being on Danny's show earlier. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, we found out Wayne and I have talked about this in the past that when that film came out, it's intended to be a moral dilemma. And they even tried in marketing to say, are you to market it as, are you team cap or are you team Iron Man? That was like the thing. Yeah. It's like, and you were supposed to pick a side. And the problem was everyone picked team cap. Yeah. <laughs> and it happened also when they did that, when they did it in the comic book version, everyone picked team cap. And I mean, everyone, because everyone sees that film as a political allegory where cap is on their side, yeah. whether they are the conservatives or the liberals. Yeah. Like the Republicans see Iron Man as the liberals trying to, you know, again, they're trying to regulate guns, whereas Democrats see Iron Man as the conservatives trying to take away um, individuality and free choice. It's, it's the Patriot Act yeah. is what this thing looks and, like. And, yeah. it, and I believe that one of the problems is because I think that when the original comic was written, Bendis chose the wrong sides. Everything that I know about those characters from my from what I bring from my own personal headcanon makes me believe that Tony Stark would have absolutely refused to register his technology and Cap would have absolutely refused to move against the government. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. He chose the sides that he chose. Yeah. And it becomes impossible to reconcile those things. Yeah. And that reminds me of a political question. I don't want to like divert us here because yeah. I know we're probably running out of time. But um the um uh Whenever I hear, I, I'm kind of really famously ambivalent about the whole gun issue. Like, I'm, <laughs> honestly, I think even if we made guns illegal now, it wouldn't make any difference. There's so many millions. There's more guns than humans in America. Yes, right? So it's not going to make any difference in crime. Uh, and so um, but when conservatives argue that. We need guns to protect us against the government. Okay. A, that's dumb because they have nukes, but, um, but, and it's B, also terroristic. Okay. And, and that's my thing. <laughs> so you're saying that at some point you are going to be willing to shoot American soldiers, um, because you've defined them as the enemy. You're telling me that the, the, the party of patriotism and nationalism needs guns because you can imagine a day that you would shoot a cop. I watched an argument on Facebook where a very conservative pro-gun person was arguing that he needed guns because Obamacare was destined to fail. And when that does, he needs to be able to take his son to another country without the government stopping him to get service. And it's like, so you're saying you want the right to bear arms because you need to go somewhere with socialized health care. <laughs> and it was like, that was essentially his argument without realizing. Yeah. That's what he, it's like, yeah. um, <laughs> but that's I, honestly, I see that in the Tony Stark stuff, right. Mm-hmm. And, and all that civil war debate, that, that weird paradox about fighting for an ideal that would contradict another ideal that you hold. And right. so I, somehow there's a connection in my mind about this and why I said it, well, but yeah. <laughs> so just to finish it out, that was my final question in reality. And we started off talking about, can we define someone, even a real life person, even a cartoonish person like the current president as an anti-hero or a hero. And we, we decided they're too complex. How about this? Rephrase your question. <laughs> what do you mean? Brian has another question. You walk up to the mic again. 
rephrase your question. I think you're approaching it from the different, uh, the wrong angle. Try it like this: Can we app, can we operate or exist in the absolutes? Well, that was, that actually is where I, where I was going. If we say that we cannot define even a real person as an absolute anything X, I am a hero. I am a villain. I am an anti-hero. I am um, whatever. Any people agree with people this, are not yes. archetypes. Are fictional characters even archetypes sure i can create a very simple aesop's fable where someone is devoutly good and i or not even aesop's fable i can read pilgrim's progress yeah where pilgrim's progress if you've not read it is an allegorical novel by john bunyan yeah. from i don't remember the year a couple hundred century. yeah a couple hundred years yeah, ago yeah, yeah. it is in my opinion, very boring because it was from the days before anybody invented plot, but also <laughs> it was, it's the story of a man walking to heaven yeah. for, I think there's 800,000 pages in it. And abstract concepts are embodied in, in yeah. real people. So it's being, probably, it's probably only like 300 pages. I read it in like yeah. two days, but it felt like 1800,000. Yeah. Um, it is slow because it, it's just a story, but I will grant that he is a devoutly good person. The character's name, who is Christian, a Christian, um, is clearly very good. And that's part of what makes him not interesting to me because nothing's really happening to complicate his narrative. Are other characters in fiction more interesting? Because even though we think of them as archetypes, no one ever is as clean as as they can. And so the most recent seasons of Cage... And Jessica Jones, especially, have dealt with that. What is it to be good? What is it to be bad? Yeah. What does it mean when I don't know where the line that I won't step over is? Yeah. I mean, I guess what I would say is that a fictional character only exists in their representation. There is no off screen. There is no they don't exist off screen or off, Mm -hmm. off. You know what I mean? And so. Donald Trump does like there are Donald Trump exists on my screen and on my Twitter feed. Oh, not mine. Cause I don't follow him. But, but, oh, oh, I do. I, but, just, but, I need to know what he's thinking at all times. And the only good thing about Donald Trump is that it turns out he'll tell me. Yeah, no, no. I've, I've pruned my Twitter feed to try and maintain some sanity. And so uh, I lost that long ago. And so the, um, uh, he, he exists in those screen spaces where I can define him in these anti-hero hero terms, but he also exists at the kitchen the table world yeah. where I don't see him. Right. Yeah. And so I'm sure he's done wonderful things for people like um, sure. out of the goodness for his heart in his heart. If they're, yeah, whatever. I mean, I agree that uh, I know, that I know. I'm, I'm pushing things. I'm pushing grew things. three sizes. <laughs> I'm pushing <laughs> things. But um, I think that's the difference is a fictional character, even though they might be complex, is still flat enough that you can, you have the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's much harder to define a human being where you don't have the whole picture. Look at Bill Cosby for Pete's sake, right? Um, all that time, his real life was doing what we now know, right? Mm-hmm. But if if he had died 10 years ago, we would have never known any mm-hmm. of this stuff about him. And in his even, life, he would have been hero. And now even, he's a villain. I mean, even, you know, he is a villain. Yeah. And yet... Bill Cosby has done much tangible altruistic good for the universe. Right. Exactly. So. And so that's what I'm saying. And so mm-hmm. the way we narrativize fictional characters doesn't work really well with real people because um, <laughs> fictional characters are no less deep or conflicted or complex, but they are finished in a way that human beings are not, um, or at least the way we have no access. We're not omniscient narrators, right? We don't know the inner thoughts and inner workings of each other's bodies or minds. And so, um, so we've resolved nothing. <laughs> it's, usually, it's a podcast. Yeah. There is no third act. <laughs> oh, yeah, there'll be another one next week. <laughs> but 
I'd like to thank you for coming on, Danny. As always, it's, awesome. it's been thank great. You for having me. Um, thanks for inviting me out to Monolithus again. This has been great. It's uh, been yeah. it's always um, fun to hang out here. And everybody listening in Pennsylvania next year, uh, beginning of November, end of October, the Mac Charity Con is uh, is a fun time. Please bring your friends. Danny, where, where can people follow your show for more of this? Uh, yeah, so I do the Sectarian Review podcast. It's sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Um, on Facebook, you can follow us. I post you know, links to the show. And every now I don't, I don't go, I don't overwhelm your Facebook feed on that. Um, I probably do Facebook poorly, but yeah, if you like the Facebook page, you'll find most of what we do too. Well, Katia already had to leave early. So I'll just say you can follow her and learn all about sewing and video games on Instagram at just that nerd kid. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast. You can follow my blog at www.chrismaverick.com and you can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we talk about what the next upcoming show will be and we look for comments so that we can answer them as you listen. If you enjoy the show, please Subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get podcasts from and leave us a review. Actually, leave us a review on Facebook. Leave us a review on the podcast page on iTunes because that helps other people find the show and it gives me a reason for living. Thanks again, Danny, for being here. Yep. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our epic theme song that is playing us out. Max had a new album dropped this week, so that will be linked in the show notes. And thank you again and we'll see you next time. Bye. Seriously, the hell's wrong with you people? We're bad guys. It's what we do.